Matthew chapter 4. We're going to continue the story of Jesus' temptation. Thank you to Ben for presenting the word last week. And we'll continue in verse 5 down to verse 11. It is part of the same passage as last week. It's a, it's a one story of Jesus' temptation. Three temptations. We're going to look at the last two. The goal of this sermon is simple. To lift up Jesus so everyone will look at him. And I think the passage and the whole scripture uh, urges us to do that and gives us plenty of resources to do it with. It's really just up to us to look. It's up to me to communicate the truth about Christ, and it's up to all of us to share in that together. I did enjoy my time away. Imagine a church where there are 25 Brother Coxes helping you preach. And they stand up and clap when you make a good point. It was quite exciting. Uh, but every culture is different, and so we try to uh, express what's best in our culture and learn from other cultures at the same time. What's most important is that your heart hears the truth and you respond. Matthew chapter 4, it says in verse 5, Then the devil took him up into the holy city. So the devil had already met him in the desert. The Holy Spirit had driven, had urged, led Christ out into the wilderness after his baptism. And Satan had met him there to tempt him, to test him. And now he brings, first one was a, a temptation of sort of a physical need of, of he needed to eat. He'd been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. Jesus resisted that temptation. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, so that'd be Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle of the temple overlooked a ravine so that one historian says that no one could actually look over it without getting dizzy. It was so high. So he set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, or another way, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. Jesus said, If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. That's what's happening here. Jesus is being lifted up. That's what we're going to see through this passage. Primarily, the point of this passage is that Jesus is the perfect, faithful Son of God, as proven by the Scripture. The, the whole point of this passage, the main point, is that Jesus is the faithful Son of God, proven in temptation. But we're going to see some applications. Who is Jesus, and what does it show here? It shows that Jesus won't fail God, and Jesus won't fail us. And thirdly, Jesus won't stop here. 
The more you look at Jesus, the more you realize how great he is. There's a magnetism to Jesus. It's a spiritual magnetism, so it looks different than the world. The world draws you in a very physical way. You can just sort of, you can feel the power from the, from the eloquence or from the music or from the, from the charisma. Not so with Jesus. He draws you with the truth and with the spirit. But in order to do that, he must be lifted up. And the first thing we see is the character of Jesus. What happens when Jesus faces Satan? This is what happens. Primarily, Jesus won't fail God. See, we have to start with God before we start with us. And so if Jesus took care of us but failed God, that's worthless. And that's just sort of a way to rearrange our priorities. So Jesus won't fail God, which means if he won't fail God, the rest comes after. So the relationship with God is primary because he'd already been declared the son of God. The relationship had been declared. The heavens opened, the dove came down, the voice announced, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased because the relationship has been announced, been prophesied before, it existed from all eternity, but now it's seen publicly. And so what does Satan do? Satan knows the source of Jesus' power. It's his connection in the Godhead. Because Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, therefore he has all power. So what does Satan go for? The relationship. In all your life, your relationships are the most important thing to you, whether you realize it or not. Relationships are what gets you through. And that's comes from Jesus and his creation. And so when Satan wants to destroy, he goes to the source. If he can destroy relationships, he can destroy people. And so what does he say to Jesus? If you are the son of God, if you really do have a relationship with God, he calls into question the relationship. And by doing that, he baits Jesus. You know how you do when you're a kid? You won't do that. I bet you won't do that. I double dog dare you to. What are you doing? You're trying to bait them into doing something they wouldn't do before, but now there's a challenge, and the challenge makes them rise to it. So Satan has said, if you really are the son of God, throw yourself down from this pinnacle. Now, certain death, of course, falling hundreds of feet. Why would he do that? If you are the son of God, if you have a relationship with God, then you will be treated as a son. That's true, isn't it? See, Satan doesn't work in complete lies. He comes to God with truth. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He shall give his angels charge of you. Why would he give his angels charge of you? Because he's the son. And good fathers take care of good sons. So if Jesus threw himself off the cliff, his good father, whom he has a relationship with, who has declared that he is well-pleased, what will he do? He'll save him. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. So, in a sense, everything Satan has said is true. Which is why it's so deceptively powerful. Satan is going for the relationship. He's baiting Jesus to prove his relationship with God on his own terms. 
Satan is setting the agenda. So whatever truth is being used, the goal is to undermine the relationship. If you are the son of God, then God will treat you like a son. And Jesus said to him, I don't work on your schedule. It's basically what he says to him. We don't set the agenda for God. It is written again. So you see what he says? Satan says, it is written. Jesus says, well, it's written elsewhere. The Bible also says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But won't God take care of you? That's too far. You see, he's quoting it from Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, God had brought the people out of Egypt into the wilderness, where Jesus is now. And God had promised to care for them. Well, now there's no water. And so the people said, you said you'd care for us. Prove it. And God said, no, I don't prove things to you like that. I said I'd take care of you. Now believe it. They're like, no, 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 you prove it first. We're calling you on this. We're testing you. You shall not test the Lord your God. He said he'd take care of you. He will. And did he take care of them? Yes. And so Jesus is saying, I don't care about whatever your plan is, your, your method of testing God. Scrap all of that. You don't test God. You trust God. See, that's what a true son does. A true son doesn't put his relationship to the test. He trusts in the relationship. And so the son responds to Satan with a higher truth that says, I am a son, and I know the father, and so I don't need your test. If you are the son, you'll be treated like a son. The second temptation And the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. What is he asking here? What is he he offering? He's offering what should be Jesus's already. He's not offering Jesus anything that Jesus shouldn't have. Is Jesus the king of kings? He'd already been declared king. He'd been declared son. And so Satan says, these are yours. You deserve to have these. That's true. When when Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world, the fact is that Jesus deserved all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He ought to have had them. It was right for him to have them. He would have gotten them, and then he would have ruled them well. You see what would have happened if Jesus had received all the kingdoms? He would have been king. Justice systems would have been fixed. Poverty would have been eliminated. Only good laws in place, only bad people punished. But he would have had to just give up a little bit. No one would have seen it. No one would have seen him, on the earth at least. What does a true son do when offered the whole world at the expense of his relationship. And so we see Jesus reproducing the temptation of Israel. Israel called God's son, brought out of Egypt, baptized in the Red Sea, brought to the wilderness, but they tempt God. 
And then they're offered distractions, alliances, shortcuts. What do they do? They take them. And so Israel fails as a son. They turn their back on their father. And so now we have Jesus following in the footsteps of the first son, but he does it differently. He says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Another quotation from Deuteronomy, in the wilderness. You see, he's tying these together. He said, I'm going to quote God from the first wilderness when Israel failed. But I'm going to quote him in the second wilderness where Israel does not fail. So Jesus is the second Israel. But this time, Israel gets it right. Not the people, the true son, the new Israel, trusting in God's word, the faithful son. Finally, we see someone on this earth who is faithful to God, who God can say, everything you do is right. Sinless, not one single flaw. Never a situation, no matter how great the temptation, where this son turns. I can say it again. (laughs) This faithful son is always faithful. The king of the demons shows up with all the power of the world and says, it's all yours. A temptation that not a single one of us could stand against. And Jesus says, get out of here. He literally says, away with you, Satan. Get lost. Take a hike. That's how we would say this. He doesn't even hesitate. Could Jesus sin? I don't know, but he won't. Faithful sons don't give up. They don't compromise. And this son shows us in the most obvious and powerful and challenging way possible that he will never turn his back on God. And that tells us that there's not a single thing in this world that's worth your relationship with God. Jesus himself said there's not a single thing or person in this world that I would give up for my relationship with God. A faithful son shows in the midst of of adversity what's really important. You see what? There's nothing left out of these categories. There's nothing we'll face that's not already in here. Jesus won't fail God. And if he won't fail God, he won't fail us. See, that's what this passage teaches us. When we see Jesus' relationship with God, with the Father, we can then see our relationship with him. God who sees everything, who has the highest standards, who demands the most, who demands absolute perfection all the time with no exceptions, if Jesus can meet those standards, then we're easy. Our troubles, our relationship, that's easy. So by seeing his faithful relationship with God, we see that he won't fail us. The first way he doesn't fail us is he warns us. What's going to happen to us? The same thing that happened to Jesus. So we don't wonder what's next. You know what's next for you? You know what's going to happen this week for you? What Jesus shows us. Satan's going to come to you, and he's going to tempt you with something. He's going to tempt you with physical pleasure. 
He's going to tempt you with your relationship with God, your spiritual relationship. And he's going to tempt you with the things of the world. These are the things that God shows us in this temptation. What were the most powerful draws for God, for the Son of God? Satan shows us. You think he's going to use something easier on us? These are the pinnacle of temptation, which means everything else is going to fall underneath of it. Who is going to attack you this week? Satan. Satan's real. This wasn't a dream Jesus had. Satan's coming for you, just like he came for Jesus. But you know what else? You're coming for you. Now, here's where you're not like Jesus. You see, when Jesus was tempted, nothing inside of him wanted it. The temptation did not come from within him. It came from without. Satan came to Jesus. It's not like that with us, is it? You don't need anyone around you for you to face temptation. You just sit quietly for long enough, and the temptation just rises up within you. You see, we don't want Jesus to be just like us, because then the temptation's within him. What this shows us is that because Jesus is not like us, we see who we are. We don't need Satan. We've got us. Half the time, Satan doesn't need to do anything. He just lets us do it. The corruption within us rises up and tempts us. That's why it's so hard to do right, because everything's against us. But you know what's worse? It's not just Satan. It's not just self. It's others. You know who's going to tempt you this week? Your friends, your spouse, your kids, your parents, the people closest to you are going to tempt you with sin. Now, they may not mean to, but you live in a fallen world. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside lead apostle, following him anywhere, listening to every word, going out and teaching for him. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, tempt him. And Jesus says, turn and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He didn't say, get behind me, Peter. He used the exact same words to Peter that he used with Satan. You see what had happened? Peter, his closest disciple, his follower, was working as Satan. And if that can happen to Peter, it can happen to your friends. Everything's against you, isn't it? The world's against you, your friends are against you, you're against you. Satan's more against you than you are for God. Christensen said 1,500 years ago, we are not so earnest for our own salvation as the devil is for our ruin. The devil wants to destroy you more than you want to live. That's what this shows us. The Satan shows us who he is when he tries to destroy Christ, and when he couldn't destroy Christ, he tried to destroy Peter. So much that Peter actually mimicked Satan. Get behind me, Satan, to Satan and to Peter. And you're going to have to do that sometimes. You're going to have to turn to your friend, to your spouse, to your parents, and say, no, you are not following God right now. 
you are following Satan. Now, you may want to temper that in the appropriate situation, but don't think that Satan has no influence in the people around you. And so we see what Jesus goes through. And what is the temptation? Man shall not live by bread. Uh, the devil said to him, if you are a son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels. How is that a temptation? What is he tempting him with? Manipulating God with faith. He's saying, God must do what you want if you do the right thing. If you believe, if you name it in faith, God must give it to you. God must work on your terms. Now, I know this is a, a problem because I've heard the other end of it. I did everything God wanted, and look what happened. I lived right, and look what happened. I did what I was supposed to do, but God didn't do what he was supposed to do. If there's a problem in conservative Christianity, this is it. You say, if I do what's right, God must do what I want. If I throw myself off a pinnacle, if God really loves me, he'll take care of me. That's what Satan was offering Jesus. That's how powerful it is, which means we cannot discount how powerful it is to us. Yes, we believe in God, and yes, we may be saved, but that doesn't mean we will not try to manipulate God with his own promises. God, you said, don't tempt God. But God said, don't tempt God. Well, how do we know he's going to take care of us if he doesn't know? He said he'd take care of you. Well, when? How? What do I need? Don't test God. God doesn't work on our agenda. Satan knew that this was a powerful temptation, which means it's a powerful temptation for us. And the older you get, I think this may be more of a temptation to bitterness. You look back over decades of doing what God said, and you don't see what the results are. And you say, God, maybe you can't be trusted. What? No. Okay, God, I'll trust you if, if I'm the son of God, if I'm a child of God, then do this. Edward Schweizer says, man may become Lord of God and compel him to act through the power of faith. Manipulating God. There's no answer to that except stop. Just stop. Jesus didn't give reasons why it wouldn't happen, why it shouldn't happen. He just said, stop. Stop with the line of questioning. Stop with the test. Stop with the manipulation. Stop with the conditions. Sit back and trust God. If God takes you to the wilderness and promises to take care of you, he will. And if you're dying of thirst in the wilderness, he'll take care of you. How? I don't know how. I don't know how. doesn't matter. Do you trust God or do you trust the system? But then he goes to the next and the most powerful temptation. The devil took him on an exceedingly high mountain, took him to the top, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, you can have it. If. Just compromise a little bit. What is this? 
Jesus should have been king of the world. And Satan says, you can be. The end is good. You just have to do something wrong to get there. The end justifies the means. And so you compromise with the world to achieve good things. You say, how else are we going to be the king of the world? How else are we going to achieve justice and truth and righteousness if we don't do these things? How else? And so Satan says, the only way to get the, the end of you being king is to compromise along the way. This is why we're so desperate for Tim Tebow to be a Christian. We're so desperate for Kanye's conversion to be real. We need Donald Trump to be a Christian. Because if those guys are Christians, then we have power. We can make changes. We can bring in the truth to the kingdoms of this world. Now, we may have to compromise a little along the way. But look at what we'll get out of it. Look at how much influence Tim Tebow could have to all the millions of people. How we get there? Well, look at the goal. So we compromise with the world to achieve good things. You know what it takes to bow the knee to Satan? One sin. One sin. We think it's sort of like giving up our life to Satan. No. All it takes to bow the knee to Satan is to overlook something you should have spoken about for some better end. It's to promote a political party by keeping quiet about the stuff that's wrong in it. Because you need them in power. You know, the Baptists before the Revolutionary War were prophets and witnesses. They spoke against slavery. They elevated African Americans to pastors and elders in their churches. They stood against oppression. But when the Revolutionary War came, they saw a chance to be insiders. And they went from being persecuted and saying, one Baptist leader said that the, that the Revolutionary War was the spirit of the Antichrist. By the end of the war, they were saying that the Revolutionary War was the means to bring in the Redeemer's kingdom. What happened? One man said he was a young Baptist pastor in the South before the Revolutionary War, and he was a vocal anti-slavery advocate because of the Bible, because he was an outsider too. And so he spoke the truth. After the Civil War, after the Revolutionary War, he became in power, and he wrote the definitive book on why slavery was biblical. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. He was an outsider, but then he got a chance to be an insider, and then he had to defend the institution. He just had to make one compromise. So that he would not be oppressed, he had to oppress somebody else. But look at all the good he had. His church grew. He wrote books that millions read. And so Jesus has offered the same thing. Look how much good you can do, Jesus, if you just make one mistake. Look how much good you can do if you just compromise a little bit. And Jesus said, get lost. I don't need any presidential candidate, sports figure, influential person of any kind to further the kingdom of God. But we so often compromise a little bit to get something good. We'll keep quiet. We'll advocate. We'll long 
for celebrities to announce they're Christians? You know what that longing is? Acceptance into this world. We want to see Christians be accepted, to rise to power. We want to go and announce our Christian faith into the world and not be persecuted. We're so afraid that something's going to change in this world and that a politician's going to get in or a law's going to be made and suddenly we're going to face persecution for our own faith. That drives us sometimes. The fear of being oppressed. Why? Because we long for the power of this world and its glory. To avoid oppression. To be comfortable. That the kingdom of God would come right now. With no trouble. That is a temptation from Satan. Not many wise. Not many noble. Not many famous. Not many rich are called. That the wisdom of God might be made known through the foolishness of preaching. There's nothing foolish about a president. There's nothing foolish about a superstar. So why do we want them to be Christians? That's not the way the kingdom works. That is the way Satan's kingdom works. And so the, so the passage shows us we must renounce the world and its glory for Christ. And one day that'll come. But not yet. Jesus left. He goes before us, faces Satan for us, reveals Satan's... You see what he did? He opened the playbook on Satan. Satan wasn't announcing this strategy. So Jesus said, hey, everybody, watch what Satan's about to do to me. Now you know what he's going to do to you. This was not Satan's plan to be announced. But Jesus has announced it to us. So the power of the word. You see how Jesus quotes the scripture? All the truth was there, but Jesus quotes it to show us how it applies. So when you're tempted, this is what you look to, just as Jesus did. If Jesus needed scripture to face Satan, you need scripture to face Satan. So Jesus shows that. He goes before us. He gives us the Holy Spirit, the comforter. You have no power to face Satan. You have no power to face yourself, Satan, and the world. So you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes before, faces Satan. When he goes to heaven, he doesn't leave us. He advocates for us right now. How are you going to make it through this week if everybody's against you? Well, Jesus is for you. He didn't forsake God when faced with Satan. He won't forsake you because you messed up. If he wouldn't leave his relationship in front of Satan, the tempter, with everything offered, he's not going to abandon you. You are a much easier project to handle than Satan. And if he can handle Satan, he can handle you. So how are we going to get through this week? Jesus is with us. He didn't just show us a good example and bail. He came back. He is with us. Jesus won't fail God. Jesus won't fail us. But Jesus won't stop here. He took him up to a mountain. This is the only mountain Jesus went up on. There's other mountains that come after this. This is the mountain of temptation where he is revealed to the world as the perfect son of God. He's lifted up on this mountain. All can see how perfect he is. 
But he doesn't just stay at this mountain. You see, when he rejects Satan's offer, in order for him to be king, he must go about it a different way. In order for him to be the king of the world, the hard way, not Satan's way, he must suffer. And so there's another mountain that comes after this. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn, walk Christ my Savior, weary and worn, facing for sinners death on the cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Blessed Redeemer, precious Redeemer, seems now I see him on Calvary's tree, wounded and bleeding for sinners pleading, blind and unheeding, dying for me. You see, when he rejected Satan on that mountain, he had to go up Calvary's mountain. In order to be the Savior, he had to suffer. And so he suffers for us. He suffers up that mountain. Having rejected the easy way, he takes the hard way. John 12 says, now this is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from earth, I will draw all people to myself. That's so great, but you know how he was lifted up? He was hung on a cross. He was lifted up on a mountain where he was shamed. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. You see, he didn't stay on the mountain of temptation. He didn't achieve victory and live in the valley of peace. He went up another mountain of suffering. This is the way of Christ in our life. Dying for us. Lifted up for us. A mountain of agony, pain, and death. What a Savior. But that's not the only mountain he had. At the end of the book of Matthew, he went up another mountain. You see, remember what Satan offered him? He said, I'll give you all the world. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority, all power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. You see, the first mountain, Satan says, I'll give you the earth if you bow down. Jesus says, No, I'll take the mountain of suffering. But then he comes to this mountain, he says, Guess what, Satan? I got it anyway. And I didn't just get all the kingdoms of this earth and glory. I got heaven too. You see, this mountain where he stands is a mountain of authority. Satan gave him a cheap copy, and he turned it down for suffering. And now he got the real thing. And But you know what's best about this mountain? The first mountain with Satan, he was by himself. The second mountain, the cross, he was by himself. But on this mountain, they're with him. We're with him. You see, the mountain of authority and glory, he brings us into it. He says the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them, not just for him, for them, all authority. Why do the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Then the Lord speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. But the glory is he didn't just leave Jesus there by himself to rule. He brought us with him. He said, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. That's the same promise you get. You get what Jesus got. If you resist Satan and turn to Christ, you get all the kingdoms. You get all the glory. You get to be with Jesus. Exodus 19 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and set bounds for them around the mountain. Take heed to yourselves, they go not up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall shortly be put to death. That was the old mountain where you couldn't even get close. 
but now you have a mountain. Hebrews 12, you have not come to a physical mountain. You have not come to a physical kingdom. You're not going to be made the president of the United States. You're not going to get promoted at work. No, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful gathering. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. You have come to the assembly of God's firstborn children. You've come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. See, so we're stuck on Mount Temptation, aren't we? Maybe we'll get to Mount Calvary. But Jesus says, don't stop there. Go to the mountain of authority. I'm there too, and you can be with me. You can be with God. You can have joy. But you know, it doesn't even end there. There's another mountain waiting for us. How do you put up with all of this temptation and trial? There's a mountain waiting for us. And I saw the Lord lifted up on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. The seraphims couldn't even look at him. They covered their face and they said, Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. But now that we've come to a new mountain, Revelation 14, then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And I heard a voice from heaven, the same voice that made Isaiah fall down and cover his face. Like a voice of many waters, like the voice of loud thunder. But this time the voice welcomes you to the mountain. It invites you up to God. It says you will now see not as in a glass darkly, but face to face. The mountain of glory. First the mountain of temptation, then the mountain of suffering, then the mountain of authority, but now the mountain of glory. And Isaiah says, and in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrows. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. God is inviting you up to the mountain. Not because of anything you did, but because of all the mountains that he stood on. And now we can stand with him. Let's pray.